What the heck is an alt-right comedy echo chamber and are socialist comedy clubs in Los Angeles the answer? We're going to talk about that and the Pandora Papers as well as celebrity fight tapes with comedian Lou Perez, formerly of We the Internet TV. I'm Stephen Kent and you're watching right now. You're doing a set last night before you came and joined us here in DC. You were moderating, not moderating, you were opening the Bill Crystal versus Scott Horton foreign policy debate in Soho. Yeah, I was the I was the warm-up act, the warm-up comedy act for a debate about war, which is um, you know, every comedian's dream. Um, the people of Soho are really big into drone strikes on weddings. It's just well, well, the I, funniest I was, things possible. Well, I was at one point I, you know, I was like, I guess I have to poll the audience and be like, you know, who here is pro-war and then who here is anti-war? And there, and there weren't that many anti-war people. I was like, whoa. That's, I think Bill Crystal in the debate claimed to be anti-war. You know, I think he, I think he changed, uh, he changed up his views since. We like start more wars so that we can have less wars. And, and also, more wars mean more veterans to thank. So, what do you think of the debate, though? I mean, you, you got to actually observe. I feel like this is a debate that we've all wanted to actually see. Bill Crystal have mm. to defend some of his his views and influence in the neoconservative foreign policy establishment for all these years. How did it go for him? I have to admit, um, I performed. Uh, my wife, who was eight months pregnant, was in the audience, and I only watched the opening salvos of both uh, Bill Crystal and Scott Horton. I'm gonna check out the rest of the debate, which I probably should have done before coming here. You know, and you just <laughs> laying this on me. Um, I, I think it, I think it was it was really interesting. I think Bill was kind of, at least according to the openers, he was kind of like all over the place, and he he gave a lot of uh, he gave many inches. Um, and Scott was like, uh, you know, a you know missile guided, you know, I, you need that pun, right? You yeah, like a, war like a pun. drone pilot. Yeah, but instead of taking out civilians, he was taking out his actual target. Like as, as has to be done. Yeah. Just a real quick note to everybody watching. I'm Stephen Kent. You're watching right now. Here in the studio today, we have comedian and former head writer of We The Internet TV, Lou Perez. Really excited to have him down in the swamp with us today. Lou, it's nice to have you here, my friend. Thank you. It is, it is nice to be down here. Absolutely. Um, we've got new episodes of this show every single Thursday. So please do subscribe, like this video, and join us for future episodes with wonderful people. Uh, just like this. Um, so yeah, you did the uh, you did the debate. You made it down here. What's new in your world? What's keeping you busy? I am currently writing a book. That's it. Like, that that's it. That's it. You are writing it. a book. I'm writing a book. <laughs> I'm writing a book um, about what it's been like doing comedy over the past you know five or, or six years. Uh, you know, mixing comedy and uh, politics and and that sort of thing. So you're out there breaking hearts is what you're writing about. No, no, I, I'm, I, I, I think there are a lot of people out there when it comes to comedy uh, who think like, oh man, you can't, you can't say anything anymore, and you can't make, you know, you can't make light of anything, and uh, uh, those people uh, are wrong. So I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm very hopeful and very happy to be do comedy, be, to be doing. Well, comedy I'm, I'm happy to hear, I'm happy to hear yeah. someone say that they're hopeful. I mean, because I think part of the premise of you going and, and writing this book had to do a little bit with what you told the Wall Street Journal. It was a year ago you yep. wrote an op-ed for the journal talking about how we, the internet, and some of the work in which you had done there had been cited in an academic study 
on the alt-right pipeline, basically how YouTube sort of functions as a radicalization machine and one of the gateway drugs is, uh, is right-wing comedy or just, or just non-political, non-woke comedy. I don't know how you would describe it. Yeah, but. yeah I think it was, um, the study was, was titled like uh, right-wing, uh, the growth of right-wing echo chambers on YouTube. Far, um, and uh, yeah, so We the Internet TV was, was labeled far-right on this, uh, on this, uh, on this thing. And at the time I had, uh, I'd recently been let go from the program and I'm married and I have a kid and I'm like, I'm like, uh Oh, if, if people start thinking that I'm far right, you know, maybe they're not going to want to hire me to do anything. So I ended up writing a, uh, a response to that. And, and fortunately for me, uh, I was, in pretty good company in the far right section of the uh, of the study, I was there with um, Sam Harris and Brett Weinstein and Joe Rogan and a number of other um, of other groups. You know. Yeah, so the IDW kind of cast out leftists, right? All those people consider themselves to be left liberals who just happen to be in favor of free speech. Yeah, and uh, fortunately, um, I was able to get in touch with some of the authors. So the, the edition that everyone saw was a preprint. So I got in touch with, uh, with the authors and they finally had, a, had the final published. And the final published version of the study is very different. It has a different title. Uh, there's no longer a listing or anything like that. And uh, the, you know, the work that, that I did was basically like considered like anti-woke. It's like, oh, well, that sounds a little better than Far why'd right. They, why'd they make the changes to the, the study or the way that it was being talked about? So it was because of all the pushback that they got from people like Brett Weinstein, which, which he was the first one that I saw who shared uh, the study on, um, on Twitter. And when I was talking to, to one of the authors over, over email, he said, you know, this is, uh, I would say this is a good example of science working, right? Like we put something out there, we, we took all of the criticism and we, adjust, we yeah. you know, we, we made changes. And I'm like, yeah, you know, but the problem is the original preprint is still out there. To read what was finally published, it's behind a paywall and you have to pay 10 bucks. So if you want to spend $10 to read a very boring, <laughs> dense thing that uh, is basically saying, hey, this guy right here is not a far right radical. Um, you know, it's funny. I actually don't know how I feel about them going back and, and changing the study after getting like blowback online. I kind of feel, I don't know, I react negatively against that where I'm like, well, you know, if you got something to say it, like this is your research, go ahead and put it out. Like, why are you going to get feedback from Twitter about the people who you cited in your study? Put out your research and let people talk about whether or not it's right or wrong. Well, I think, I think some of the people whose research they used, they were also critics of. And they're like, wait a minute, these, you know. Distorting our work that we it, ex into Yeah, it. exactly. But, you know, I, you think about it and I'm like, here you have academics from, uh, from Harvard, from the University of Pennsylvania, from all over the place. There's obviously a lot of money that went into this study. You know, and it's just strange to be a part of any study, you know, to be to begin with. But it's also like, what is the goal of it? Um, and uh, from the conclusions, that, at least that, that I read, they're basically saying like, no, nah, you know, uh, uh, the the far right or the alt right is not actually growing, um, but the anti woke side is growing, right? Which I think is a pretty good thing. You know, where you have people that you know, the idea that you don't have to be a far right maniac to be anti-woke. You could be a moderate, you can be a left liberal and be able to call out this stuff. So I think it's a good sign. You know? 
Do you sort of feel like there's a, an element of the, the debate that going, going on in comedy that is sort of tired and just rehash generation over generation about like there's always going to be some comedians who prefer to play to people's ids and kind of be rude and crude and like poke at people and then there's going to be people who want to like do situational comedy and do skits about how like making breakfast went wrong for them that morning. And there's a market for everybody out there. Mm -hmm. And we really get hung up on, is this a good time to be a comedian right now? And I think that's the question that that people in, in your line of work are always getting asked, is it the wrong question? Um, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's necessarily the wrong question. I mean, one thing is uh, we have so much variety now and it's so, so much easier for a artist to find their audience, you know? So if you are someone who is into, you know, cringe humor or whatever, well, it's, it's there for you and you can go, you can go and get it. More, most importantly, you can support it. Um, so that's a thing that I'm, you know, very happy about. Um, the problem is when you have people, uh, I, I feel like a lot of people feel like, uh, sort of like over, over the years, uh, if you've taken like an improv class, right, and you've been through all these different levels of improvisation, and it's almost like you feel like you're accredited in comedy. So you know comedy. Therefore, your sensibilities gives you the right to judge what other people do and say, and that you actually have a, should have a, a say in whether or not they're allowed to do it. Um, and I think that's the big problem is when you're trying to shut people down who, you know, they're just not your speed. They're just not. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the issue of like getting training for comedy and actually going through improv classes because you sent me this article yeah. <laughs> in the LA Times and I, I got it here because it was just the funniest thing that I've read all week. So I recommend everybody to search this article up. Can the future of comedy be found in socialism in the Los Angeles Times. And I mean, there's there's just so much in here, but one of the, the primary things is that this cohort of far left comedians in LA are basically going to be starting a co-op comedy club owned by the people and the workers and the comedians themselves. And they're not going to offer improv classes because improv classes are part of a like a hierarchical structure, right? right? They talk about it in this piece as if, how does someone decide what is funny? How do you go to an improv mm -hmm. teacher and they tell you what makes people laugh? That's wrong. And you're kind of making the case like, it's kind of in the middle here, like whether or not that kind of system is actually good. Have mm -hmm. you done classes before? Do oh. you find it valuable? Oh yeah, I mean, I, you know, I got my, I got my start in college doing improv and sketch comedy and I was very fortunate in the years like 2004, 2005, to start at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater uh, in New York City. And at that time, it was like, you never knew what was gonna happen on stage. It was really exciting and eye-opening as far as like what was possible with comedy. And I think when it comes to improv, improv gets, uh, you know, people make fun of it a lot. And it's sort of, it's kind of like a throwaway joke, like sort of like Nickelback. Oh, there's Nickelback and improv and, and all that. <laughs> and one of the, I think one of the problems is, you know, people haven't seen good improv or great improv. And the fact of the matter is when you see great improv, it's like magic. It's, it's unreal what happens. And I was fortunate to be coming up at a time where that was happening all the time at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Um, and what's what's pretty obvious with all of these discussions, you know, that have happened over the over the past couple of years, where my old theater, the UCB, is being being called an institution of of white supremacy and oppression and all that. Yeah. This is improv. This is improv we're talking about. 
nobody's forcing you to do improv, right? Nobody is forcing you to do that. People's parents are dying for them to become improv artists. Whenever right. kids go off to college, their parents, the first thing they ask is, will you be taking an improv class? Right. Because I just really was hoping this for your future. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's so wild to hear, you know, all this stuff like, oh, there's a lack of diversity, in, um, you know, in improv. Is there? Well, I mean, because I, I, I do kind of have an impression of who frequents improv clubs and it's uh, scrawny, malnourished white people, uh, sometimes with dreadlocks and uh, generally yeah. who just don't bathe. Yeah, goofy white people <laughs> are into improv. Like, and yeah, that, that, that's, that's who's into it, you know? And you know, over the years, it's like, look, you know, for the most part, black people and Latinos and all that, they're not into improv. That's okay, be into what you're into. And it's so funny just to see like, you know, the, the demographic of uh, improvisers of color, where it's like, well, you guys all went to college. You guys all have the same references as all the other white people here. When you get up and do a scene, it's not like, it's not like your take on Harry Potter is somehow so different, you know, than, than, than this white dude who, you know, who you graduated with in the same class. It's, it's silly. And it's, it's sort of like, you know, uh, it, it's it's almost like with with all the the BLM protests and people taking to the streets, people were looking around and saying, "What can I do to be a part of the struggle? What can I do to to you know to show my voice? All I got is improv, so yeah. that's what I'm gonna do." And I mean, and that's like kind of what the entire couching of this article is about: is that in this time of of reckoning, ever since the George Floyd killing, everyone's trying to figure out how to do their part including comedy clubs. And comedy clubs have kind of been in decline across the country, in part just because of time and then also because of COVID, you know, sure. really kind of sealed the nail into the coffin for a lot of these clubs. But these people are then tying it to the history of exclusion and white supremacy that is baked into these institutions uh, without ever having to present any evidence for it besides that they don't like that people don't think that they're funny. Yeah. The... Uh the times that we live in, it's a double-edged sword, right? So uh, right now, you can put out your material, right, for, for the world to see, right? Which is great because you get to prove how good you are. Now, if you're not good, then you're going to have material saying you're not that funny. So that's what these people are dealing with, too. Like, you, I don't think you can claim that you're being excluded and shut out and pushed out and all that if you're not funny, so I say, like, show your work, right? And chances are you probably suck and that you're looking for any reason for why you're being excluded outside of just admitting that you suck. That's what I mean. Like, like last night when I performed, uh, not everything killed. You know, not everything went over well. But Bill, I Bill Crystal killed. Bill Crystal. Oh. He's yeah. a lot of killing. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh, Billy. Low blow. Yeah. But I like to make sure that there's at least a few videos of me being funny. So when I tell people, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm funny. I've been funny before. They actually believe me. So that's where we're at. Yeah, I mean, the, I think just the general attitude between people who want to start a, uh, a, a comedy co-op underpinned by socialist values. They don't believe in market response sort of as, right. as a part of how they view the world. They don't view there being a demand for a certain kind of product as, as a merit for actually doing it. So they just want people to applaud whether or not they've actually done something that is funny. I mean, this article is just riddled with all of these just- It's, almost, par it's almost parody itself. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it is. Like, they, <laughs> they're asked uh, whether or not there's gonna be censorship at this club because it's gonna be run 
run by committees. There's not going to be owners, but in, instead of having a single ownership hierarchical structure and then employees, there's going to be committees running the club. And there is, of course, going to be a committee that deals with whether or not jokes are insensitive to people. Uh, would you like to be on that committee? Uh, I mean, I Maybe for a day. So like, I would actually pay not to be a part of any of this. Like, I would like if they if they needed just like, you know, because I mean, because maybe like there is a future where you know, where that we collectivize you know all of the uh, industries and that I am you know sent to the improv camp where I, I am forced to perform and take suggestions and, and all that. If I can pay not to be involved in that, that might be a good. The interview the interviewer asked these uh, these guys. Uh, so there's this misinformed idea that when people hear socialist or worker cooperative, they think censorship. And don't worry, the comedy co-op has a plan for that. He responds, what's important to me is to be solution-oriented. If someone screws up on stage, which of course, like, what does it mean to screw up yeah. on stage and by whom? We're not going to kick them out. There's going to be accountability. We tell people to act better, and we give them tools. We need to have sensitivity training. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what is the, the response is, you're not going to be canceled by the Comedy Co-op Socialist Club. You're going to be put into a re-education camp. Yeah, you're going to be made to be more sensitive to what you do. And there, there, there's something that's happened over the years where, like, the PR guys have gotten to socialism, where we're just going to make this stuff sound a little better. And I, I noticed that with like democratic socialism, where it's no longer the collective ownership of the means of production. It's the social ownership of the means of production. Wow, man, that sounds so much better than collective. Why? What's that? I mean, why? Why do you think the what's with the word change? Well, because you, a lot of people, they don't want to admit the past failings and also what, you know, what uh, you know? What that actually consists of? If you are going to collectivize, if the social ownership of the means of, of production, and uh, my good friend uh, Gene Epstein, who runs the Soho Forum and had me uh, be the opener for last night's debate, uh, he's done a splendid job in his debates with socialists, getting them to admit what it is that they want, and what they want is uh, whether you call it a collective or social or uh, worker ownership of the means of productions, they want to make it illegal for me to have my own business, to hire who I want for salaries, right? And they want to make it illegal for me, if I don't want to own my own business, to just work, to be, you know, to work for a wage, right? Now, just imagine what that, what that takes when you're talking about a country where predominantly people work for a boss, right? We're talking about these relationships of hundreds of, of, of millions of people, right? Suddenly being illegal. So The interesting kind of idea that would underpin a comedy co-op would basically be that people get to set their own ticket prices to perform at that club. So right. for you to go and do a night of stand-up and you have no name recognition and nobody's ever seen you, right. you get to set the ticket price and the value for what you do, which I, I mean, I, I suppose like that feels nice to say like, all right, well, you know, my time is worth this much. Right. But then there's no aspiration sort of baked into this idea. I, I don't People, when they pursue being a comedian, they generally would like to be a well-known comedian that has a huge following because they frame that as the problem, that right. competition and people shooting for the stars is the problem with comedy today. Well, well, it's it's something where, I guess, what would it come down to, like, the theory of, uh, uh, the labor theory of value, or is that, is that I forget. Yeah, that, something that, like so, that. Something like that. That sounds like a real idea that yeah. someone has once said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, just like this idea, like I've been doing comedy for, for 20 years, right? And 
some of the stuff that I've worked my hardest on and put my most, the most hours in and I put it out there and it fails, right? And then you have stuff where I just throw it out there and it does well. And it just, that's just how it goes. Like there's no guarantee because you worked really hard at this thing that there's a market for you or that other people are gonna see value in what you do. Um, and that's just something we have to, we have to deal with. Um, and I think rather than, you know, trying to, uh, you know, create this, uh, this space where that's not a reality, you know, uh, you have to deal with that and you have to adapt and see what you can, uh, you know, see, see what you could do. I think that like the mindset of the socialist comedian in Los Angeles is two things. One, they think they're the first of their kind. They think no one has ever tried this before. When there have never been beatniks wandering Los Angeles right. before trying to tear down the capitalistic systems that run the United States. Uh, and then two, they also just genu genuinely don't believe that human nature is sort of a set thing. They believe like people's incentives can be molded to whatever their policies are going to be. And it guides everything from the way they would approach doing comedy that people can be shaped to also how they would run a country, mm -hmm. like how they would actually enact socialist policy, high tax regimes, right? Yeah. Did you see the, the Panama Papers drop? The other day, uh, oh yeah, wait, uh, Pandora. Um, Pandora. Panama so, was no, four well, years. It. Yeah, 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 five so years. So earlier, four years so. ago was yeah. the Panama Papers, and then this week, uh, the Guardian dropped uh, the Pandora Papers. Yeah. So this big data dump that was pulled together, um, leaks, I guess, right, of the wealthiest people in the world and cataloging where they put their money. And it's framed as if it's some sort of breaking news story that rich people do this. But of course, it's only interesting if you don't already think that when people are taxed super high in whatever country, they're going to just put their money elsewhere because sure. that's what people do. Well, well, it's so um, the, the piece that I read in The Guardian yeah. about it, there were there were two things that were uh, that were just wow, just blew my mind. One that the king of Jordan has a lot of money. Right. So the king of Jordan, you know, a monarchy has a lot of money. That was uh, that was pretty wild. And they repeated this a few times in the article. What these people are doing isn't illegal. Right. Yeah. It's at the top of the article and the bottom. Just yeah, like, by the way, no, no allegation of criminal activity. But this cachet of like eleven point nine million files from companies that include, I mean, like what there were there was Elton John in here. What was Elton? Ringo, Ringo Starr, a bunch of royals and prime ministers from the Ukraine to, like you mentioned, Jordan, that they all put their money offshores yeah. to avoid the tax regimes in their own countries because that's what anybody would do. Right, right. I mean, I'm, I guess. I'm not that interested in in rich people, you know. Like I'm, I'm not like uh, like celebrities in particular. Like there are a lot of people who are interested in like celebrity sex tapes and stuff like that. Like I'm not. <laughs> not you. No, I'm you not. Never looked up no, 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 no. State. I would be. I would be more interested in watching like a celebrity, like a celebrity couple having an argument in public. That like I'd be. much rather watch them fight than do uh, than do the other stuff. So like this stuff, like as you know, they have this much money. I don't really care. But I think it would be interesting just to see. All the hypocrites, yeah. you know. I think that, that's something you know. A dump like this could actually get out all these, you know, the hypocrisy. It's it's sort of like in in the states when it comes to uh, 
you know, politicians being against school choice, and it turns out, oh, they have four kids in private school. It's like, yeah. I did. I did learn something though through through the Pandora Papers. So they've got fourteen offshore service providers that are cited in the leak that provide corporate services to individuals and companies looking to move their money. But I did not know that the lightly regulated tax havens include one, the British Virgin Islands, mm. uh, Panama, the Cook Islands and the US state of South Dakota. <laughs> so I wonder if like the, the, the King of Jordan is putting his money with, uh, with Christy Nome in South Dakota. That's weird. That is, that is <laughs> We're weird. the tax haven in the United States? Let's go to South Dakota. Well, yeah, and why aren't the other states you know, coming on board? I mean, it seems like Texas or Florida would be like, no, there's no way that you're gonna be the tax haven. We're gonna be the tax haven states. Yeah, I mean, this. I think it's just always like, it's the intentions versus reality thing with socialists. Um, there's always going to be a natural reaction to these kind of high tax regimes. And they just ignore it every single time. Like you did a documentary for We the Internet. It was last year. It was on uh, on socialism. It was on Swedish socialism in particular, right? Yeah, it was um, five reasons why we need Sweden's democratic socialism. Yeah. So, so I flew all the way to Sweden to find out that they're actually not socialists or democratic socialists. They are a market-based um, welfare state that taxes everyone very, very high. So. Well, tell me more about what you learned. Like, what are the myths? What is what is the key misunderstandings? <clears throat> well, some of the the key myths uh, key misunderstandings uh, are just like only the rich, you know, pay the uh, you know pay the most in, in taxes, and that's just not not the reality. So, in the United States, we get you know sold this bill of goods that everything that we want, all we have to do is just tax the billionaires, and we're going to be able to get it where I think the Swedes have a much more uh, adult, uh, responsible uh, uh, way of looking at things, where it's like, if we want this, we're all going to have to pay for it. And we just can't demonize, you know, um, you know, one class of people, because like with the tax havens, if we do that, they're just going to leave. They're going to leave the country. Do you feel like you're like that documentary and putting it out there? Do you feel like it changed anybody's minds? You know, when when people who are further to the right kind of do these like myth busting on operations on Swedish mm. socialism to try to like kind of undercut Bernie's messaging or whatever, there seems to always kind of be like a, a crowd effect. Like all of all of us go like, yeah, that's all true, wonderful. But did it reach people? Did you have people email you and be like, I changed my mind on this? You know, I, I wonder about that because you know you wonder how much of the stuff that that you do is just you know preaching to the choir and just giving you know giving your side the uh, the lols uh, and all that. Um, I think the Facebook version of it has like over a million views, um, so it definitely got out there. What I did notice though is in the comments, it did spark a lot of uh, conversation and debate, mm. right? So the one thing that that I would you know the one thing that that I would that I would be happy with is uh, if anything is just stop calling the Nordic countries socialists. Like just stop, um, call them social, you know, democracies or whatever. Just stop using the S word because that S word has a very specific definition. And if you want to have like actually productive conversations, we need to have an agreement on what on the definitions that we're using. Um, so in myth busting uh, Sweden, did you actually find yourself compelled at all about the way that they do things there? Did I? Did were you compelled at all by the high tax regimes where you get a lot of stuff as a result? Well, I think you get a lot of stuff 
back at the end, like, like as far as like pensioning goes and, and, and all that. Um, I wasn't necessarily compelled on it. I, I, at first, I, I remember hearing about them having, you know, free college um, and, and all that. But then when you, when you realize like, oh, yeah, the colleges actually aren't that good. Um, you know, they send all their kids over here. They send their kids over here. <laughs> Please get a foreign program in the United States so you can have a future. And, and also there's, you know, the reality is like a country like Sweden, you know, there's a, a, a cohesion there, a social cohesion there because they're Swedes, you know, they're kind of all the same. Whereas here, we're all different people. We, people come here for different reasons. There was and, and social cohesion there. <laughs> now, now there's a far right movement there because they feel like the social cohesion is falling mm. apart. Um, as a result of immigration. But that's another story for another time. Yeah, I was expecting to see a lot more blondes there. But I saw, Not the case. No, I saw quite a few darkies. Like, and that that is the society falling apart, Larry. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. I got my 23 in me, man. I got some Neanderthal in me. You got it all. When does the, the book come out? I get it all. Um, the book should drop uh, next year in April, April 2022. Okay, April 2022. We'll be looking out for it. That joke is not funny anymore. That joke isn't funny anymore. It's uh, based on a Smith song. I see. I googled. I googled the, the title of your book, and all I could find was the Smiths. Why did, so I, I was curious. Why did you have to Google it? Why didn't you just know that? Just wanted to see if it was real. Luke. You just wanted to see, if, to it see was if it was real. a real book. But it's mm. a Smith song. That joke isn't funny anymore. It's too close to home. And too near the bone. That's my Smith impression. That's, uh, <laughs> he, like, Morrissey sounds like he's gargling. Uh, he gets that going. I wouldn't call it gargling. Just uh, just general moaning. But just general. Just generalized moaning. <laughs> uh, we like to uh, to kind of clean the palate every every week uh, by ending with some good news. What's got you optimistic or hopeful for us to round down on? Yeah, so uh, my wife uh, is due with our uh, to give birth to our second child at the end of this month, the end of October. Uh, that's something that has me really hopeful. Um, there are a lot of- The kids are our future. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are a lot <laughs> of doom and gloom people out there uh, who think that you know this is Armageddon. Uh, they're basically like secular, you know, uh, apocalyptic, uh, people, and where you know we already have it. We have a son, and we have another one on the way. And I think these are brilliant times to be growing up in. And I, uh, I'm definitely more of a you know, like, cheers to life and to uh, let's let's live, let's laugh, and let's not let the live, uh, laugh, and love is live, that, laugh, and is love. Is that going to be your next? This uh, is so funny. Stand up. Set? Look, look. This isn't my fault. This isn't my fault. We've been. <laughs> We've been renovating our house, right? So we've been staying with my in-laws for the past like two months. So yeah. every single time I walk into the kitchen, I see a live, laugh, love sign. Yeah. Um, so it's in there. All right. Well, I've just named your next uh, your next stand-up special that will one day be picked up by next Netflix, Live, Laugh, and Love with Lou Perez. So uh, I will say my piece of good news coming into the studio today was the first time that I ever saw order imposed on the scooter regime in Washington, D.C. So I love e-scooters. I use them everywhere. I ride them from the train to get into the studio today. I haven't taken the metro hardly in months because I don't need to anymore because scooters are fantastic. But it's also been anarchy, and I'm not an anarchist. You can just like go anywhere and fall over a scooter or even four scooters just sprawled out on the sidewalk. 
and we finally imposed some regulations in our city. <laughs> so basically, I think DC struck a deal with all the scooter companies to impose locks. So mm. they actually have to be tied up to a tree or a bike stand after use, and you photograph it when you're done. Uh, and now I feel like the city is just all instantly more clean. When I was in Austin, there were scooters littered all about and homeless littered all about. So it almost looked like all the people that were on the scooters fell and then just decided to live wherever they fell on the sidewalk. The scooters are the homeless citizens. Yeah. The real scourge. Lou, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. All right, that's it for right now this week. I'm your host, Stephen Kent. Do subscribe, like this video, leave a comment. We always try to respond to every single one. I get in the comments section almost every day and actually talk to people. So like it, love it, hate it. I will probably respond to you and at you so watch out. Uh, you can follow us on social media at RightlyAJ, pretty much across all the channels, and you can find myself on Twitter at Stephen underscore Kent. We'll be back next week with more. We'll see you then.